Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I have another comment, and I am really excited that I am getting comments more regularly. We're going to have to really beef up that Facebook page and then do some more begging, I guess, <laughs> to get people to write in. But it says, uh, this is just this week, May 19th. This is an email saying, hello, JBL. I hope you're doing well. And I am doing well. I've really been enjoying the programs lately on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I picked up the dual edition with Secret Sharer at the bookstore. I, I have, uh, he goes on to say, I'm reading it and then listening to the programs. I just started the book, so I'm not very far into it yet. And uh, actually, that's probably a good thing because we're not really that far into it yet either. We're trying, <laughs> we're trying to get there. He says, I just wanted to write and say thanks for the great programs. I plan to keep going and check out some of the other books as well. And that is from Tim from Arkansas. So thank you, Tim, for sending that in. But he brings up a good point. Uh, hopefully everybody realizes that you can go back in time you don't have to build a time machine, but you can go back in time and listen to a lot of the programs. You just go to the trumpet.com and then the, uh, the KPCG part of that, and uh, you can go back in time and listen to a lot of our books. And so I encourage you to do that. Today, what I want to do is I uh, want to continue our discussion of Jim's dinner engagement with Marlo. Now, um, Last week, my partner in literature was not with me, but uh, I promised everyone last week she would be back. So uh, my partner in literature is here with me in the studio today. So welcome back, Deborah. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yes, we've been doing this massive remodel project on our house, and it's just eaten up all of our time. We're, we're so glad it's over. It took a four-week project, took like 12 weeks. <laughs> so, so also with me in the studio today is my silent partner and my producer, Gabe. Now, uh, uh, Gabe's not allowed to talk today, but uh, yeah, he's here smiling. But anyway, he's also my teaching assistant for my literature classes, and uh, he actually took one of my junior-level classes this year, and he was the top grade in the class. <laughs> so uh, no favoritism, though. I made him work. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I just want to say that Gabe will be coming on the program with us uh, in a few weeks. Um, uh, the the other producer is uh, he's a senior and he's off on a vacation for a couple of weeks so I think he's coming back this weekend so uh, once we get him back then Gabe can come back on the radio with us now as I said during several podcasts there is much to unpack in these early chapters and also I mentioned last time it's important to mention that Conrad is using this uh, this dinner discussion between Marlo and Jim to give us the details about what happened on the Patna. And uh, uh, we're getting closer and closer, uh, you know, to learning more and more about it, and we'll learn more about it today. So uh, uh, also on today's program, I I think last time I promised 
that we'd meet with the t- uh, the frame narrator, and we didn't get that far, but uh, we're going to get there today. So, so hang in there. Uh, there's still a lot of exciting characters and events to come. This is this is quite the book. So uh, don't quit on me, and uh, or as I said earlier on, don't walk out of the movie. So uh, Deborah, let's pick up where we left off last time. Actually, you weren't here. I should say, let's pick up where I left off last time. And I just want to uh, just kind of emphasize that uh, you know when uh, we get into these conver- into this conversation. Uh, we can read between the lines, and we can see that Jim is just absolutely frustrated with what's happened. Uh, it's it's kind of stressing him out, and um, you know he is in these uh, inquiries. He's being made to look very bad. And one of the things that that we uh, ended the program with last time is he wanted it known that he was not afraid of death. He was not afraid to die. And uh, again, even though. Uh, those of you that are probably reading ahead know what really happened at the uh, with him on the Patna. We don't really know yet as we're reading along. But uh, the, the thing is, I think it's important that what he says was, he says, but I'll tell you what, I was afraid of the emergency. And so so that's what kind of freaked him out. And I think, uh, I think there's some more things that we're going to want to talk about that today. So, Deborah, since you weren't here, do you have any comments on that? Uh, well, just to continue with what you said there, if you continue to read that, that quote, it says, His confounded imagination had evoked for him all the horrors of panic, the trampling rush, the pitiful screams, boats swamped, all the appalling incidents of a disaster at sea he had ever heard of. So he might have been resigned to die, but I suspect he wanted to die without added terrors quietly in a sort of peaceful trance. <laughs> yes. So in other words, he said he wasn't afraid to die, but but partly his imagination uh, really w- was a problem for him because because it, it several times it comes out later, the imagination kind of really, really um, uh, messed him up, stopped him from doing things. Right, right. I can mm-hmm. remember that uh, when, I was, when I was growing up, my uh, older brothers and sisters would watch all these horror movies. And, uh, you know, about vampires and everything. <laughs> and I can remember I was at a friend's house. And to get there, I had to go through some woods. And to get home, I had to go back through those woods. And I remember uh, uh, we were we were doing something, and it got way past sunset. <laughs> and it was dark. I mean, it was, it was probably like uh, maybe late fall, where it was still nice outside. And I, I remember coming out and walking in the woods, and all of a sudden I saw that there was this huge moon. And all I could think was vampires were waiting for me, and I took off running. <laughs> and I, I ran faster than I ever run in my life. But when I think back about it on that, I mean, you couldn't see where the trees were. What if I'd run directly into a tree? I could have smacked my skull. So so imagination does that to people. You know, you can, you can, uh, you can actually die. <laughs> because of your imagination. So, so uh, remember also that, uh, that previously he had said he, would not, he couldn't clear out. You know, and essentially that, that means he, he would never jump ship. And so uh, we'll wait and see if, what we're going to find out about that. All right, I, 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 think, uh, I think that's probably all we, really, all we really need to read on that page. But I, I want to just slip over, and I think some of this is funny. Uh, it's not funny, but uh, on, at the bottom of page 66... 
Uh, here's Marlowe speaking. He says, how long he stood stock still by the hatch, expecting every moment to fill the ship, dip under his feet, and the rush of the water to take him back and toss him like a chip, I cannot say. Not very long, two minutes perhaps. A couple of men he could not make out began to converse drowsily, and also he could not tell where he, where he detected a curious noise off shuffling feet. Uh, above these faint sounds, there was that awful stillness preceding a catastrophe, the trying, uh, that trying silence of the moment before the crash. Then it came into his head that perhaps he would have time to rush along and cut the lanyards of the grips so the boats would float off as the ship went down. So I, I think one thing that we can say, um, and I know you and I have talked about this, that, that uh, I think Jim had the right heart in a sense, he really wanted to help people. Right, and, and that was something he actually did. He did something physical. At least at that point, he starts to. I think he gets stops, but then he does yeah. it later. But, yeah, he really did want to help people. By at least, at least if he cut the lifeboats and they were floating in the water, then if people went down, there would be something they could hang on to maybe for some people. Right. Yeah. In other words, yeah. if, if the mm-hmm. ship went down, yeah. they would float, and the right. people could get right to those. Right, yeah. But, but remember, mm-hmm. there was... Seven boats and eight hundred people. Right. Yes, right. <laughs> As he repeated last time, seven, yes. mm-hmm. seven boats and eight hundred people. So, uh, so uh, uh, notice then, uh, Marlow pops right back in here and he says the Patton had a long bridge and all the boats were up there, four on one side and three on the other. The smallest of them was on the port side and near, nearly abreast of the steering gear. And he goes on to say, he assured me with evident anxiety to be believed that he had been most careful to keep them ready for instant service. And so, so I, I think is here we don't hear Jim saying this, but Marlowe is telling us that he really works hard to defend his character. You know, yes. Jim mm-hmm. Jim really wants to defend his character. That that, that he he really he he was really um, you know anxious at this point, even at this dinner. But but he he said, look, I took care of these boats before I even knew there was going to be a crisis, and and he knew they were good boats, and uh, but but uh, uh, you know he, he just he just always having to defend himself here, and uh, Marlowe goes on to say he knew his duty. I dare say he was good enough made as far as that went, and then then he breaks in. Jim breaks in. He says, I always believed in being prepared for the worst. Now. Uh, all of your listeners out there, I want you to kind of keep that in mind. That Jim, this is this is his his modus operandi. He believes that he was always prepared for the worst. And uh, actually, what we're reading is we know for certain he was not prepared for the worst. All right. Uh, he goes on there. This is Marlowe again telling the story. He said he started steadily to run. He had to step over legs. Now remember, eight hundred people are sleeping. <laughs> a lot of them don't know. You know remember they wouldn't sound any alarms they didn't want to get the people all riled up so no one really knows so he said he's running uh, he's running over legs avoid stumbling against heads suddenly someone caught hold of his coat from below and as a distressed voice spoke under his elbow the light of the lamp he carried in his right hand fell upon an upturned dark face whose eyes entreated him together with the voice he had picked up enough of the language to understand the word water, repeated several times uh, in a tone of insistence, of prayer, almost of despair. He gave a jerk to get away and felt an arm embrace his leg. 
and so so uh, so here Jim is wanting to run over uh, to cut the boats loose so that they could float in the water, and here one of the pilgrims or one of the uh, passengers stops him and wants water, and so uh, again I think uh, you know when you first read this you think whoa what's going on here. And then it goes on there and says, The beggar clung to me like a drowning man. He said impressively, Water, water. What did he mean, water? What did he know? As calmly as I ordered him uh, to let go, he was stopping me. Time was pressing. Other men began to stir. So, so here Jim is in his mind is thinking about what? He's thinking that this man knows that there's a problem. <laughs> he knows the boat's sinking. The boat's, boat's sinking, right. And he doesn't want him to, to stir everybody up. Right, Yeah. right. And mm-hmm. that's not what's going on at no. all. And so there's another side to Jim here I think is, is uh, kind of interesting. He said, as calmly as I could, I ordered him to let go. He was stopping me. Time was pressing. Other men began to stir. I wanted time, time to cut the boats adrift. He got a hold of my hand now, and I felt that he would begin to shout. It flashed upon me. It was enough to start a panic. And I hauled off with my free arm and slung the lamp in his face. So he got pretty violent here. I mean, if, if it's a, a lamp, I'm sure it's got heavy glass in it and all that. He said, the glass jingled, the light went out, and the blow made him let go. I ran off. I wanted to get at the boats. I wanted to get at the boats. So he repeats that. It's like same same repetition. You know, seven boats, 800 people. <laughs> seven boats, 800 people. You know, I wanted to get off the boats. I wanted to get at the boats. He leaped after me from behind. I turned on him. He would not keep quiet. He tried to shout. I had half throttled him before I made out what he wanted. He wanted some water, water to drink. They were on strict allowance, you know. And he had with him a young boy I had noticed several times. His child was sick and thirsty. He had caught sight of me as I passed by and was begging for a little water. That's all. We were under the bridge in the dark. He kept on snatching at my wrist. There was no getting rid of him. I dashed into my berth, grabbed my water bottle, thrust it into his hands. He vanished, and I didn't find out till then how much uh, I was in one of a drink myself. He leaned on one elbow with a hand over his eyes. So this is Jim telling the story. He goes on to say, I felt a creepy sensation all down my backbone. There was something peculiar in all this. The fingers of the hand that shaded his brow trembled slightly. He broke the short silence. And so, uh, uh, do you have any comments on all that? Well, the, that right there is Marlowe saying he felt a creepy sensation yeah. you know, about yeah. about just the, the way, about Jim, the way he handled this. So, yeah, it's just kind of strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so then then uh poor Jim's problem gets worse. What happens when he gets over to the boats? <laughs> Who's there to meet him? You've got the chief engineer, his assistant and the skipper. And uh they're all trying to get a boat down so they can as he says, check out or jump ship. So and uh but but I notice I think if you notice here Jim Jim wants to, uh, let's see, let, let me ask you, is this Marlowe or is this Jim speaking here? Things, These things happen only once to a man, and, oh, well, when I got on the bridge, oh, so this is Jim talking. Mm-hmm. When I got on the bridge at last, the beggars were getting one of the boats off the chalks. A boat. 
I was running up the ladder when a heavy blow fell on my shoulder, just missing my head. It didn't stop me, and the chief engineer, they had got him out of his bunk by then, raised the boat stretcher again. Somehow I had no mind to be surprised at anything. All this seemed natural and awful and awful. I dodged the miserable maniac, lifted him off the deck as though he had been a little child, and he started whispering in my arms, Don't, don't. I thought you were one of them. And, of course, then he uses uh, you know, uh, uh, a racial slur because uh, you know a lot of these people were dark. He says, I flung him away. He skidded along the bridge and knocked the legs from under the little chap, the second. And I'm, I'm assuming that's what the assistant is called, the little chap. So the skipper, busy about the boat, looked around and came at me head down, growling like a wild beast. I flinched no more than a stone. I was as solid standing there as this. He tapped lightly with his knuckles the wall behind, beside his chair. So that's Jim telling that he was, mm-hmm. he was tough. It was as though I had heard it all, seen it all, gone through it all 20 times already. I wasn't afraid of them. I drew back my fist, and, and he stopped short, muttering, Ah, it's you. Lend a quick hand. That's what he said, quick, as if anybody could be quick enough. Aren't you going to do something, I asked. Yes. Clear out, he snarled over his shoulder. So, so here, Jim, again, he seems to be, to me, and, and you can uh, say what you think. He seems to be the only one on the ship concerned about, well, there's only seven boats and there's 800 people. It's true. It does seem like he's the only one concerned about, about the passengers. Yes. Yes. That Whereas the, this, this uh, group here, you know, that they're, they're all concerned about taking care of themselves. And he calls them these little beggars. He calls them beggars. <laughs> the beggars. Yeah. Beggars, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. The, the skipper and the... And the first mate and everybody, yeah. yeah. But but he's also, I mean, they actually, if, when he said he felt a heavy blow on his shoulder, I mean, it shows that Jim's pretty tough. But obviously, they they didn't want him. Well, yeah. At first, they, at first they didn't know who it was, right? And then, then they said it was him. Okay, yeah. It's you. Lend lend a hand. Okay, yeah, let's get okay, going. Okay, get in here and yeah. help us. Mm-hmm. You know. He said, I don't think I understood then what he meant. The other two had picked themselves up by that time, and they rushed together to the boat. They trampled, they wheezed, they shoved, they cursed the boat, the ship, each other, cursed me, all in mutters. I didn't move, I didn't speak. I watched the slant of the ship. She was still as if landed on the blocks in a dry dock. Only she was like this. So so I think I think here, to me, Conrad is revealing some of Jim's flaw. Is the, the ship isn't sinking. No, it's not. But it is. It is on like he, it's he, tilted. He shows his hand. It's tilted. So that's he's just focusing on the fact that it's it is it is tilted. You know, so right. it could it, it could you know sh- um, sink any time. Yeah, but it's <clears throat> but as we soon find out, <laughs> it doesn't. He goes on to say. Uh, he, he said again. It may have been twelve. He said he held up his hand, palm under the tips of the fingers, inclined downwards like this. He repeated. I could see the line of the horizon before me, uh, as clear as a bell above her steam head. I could see the water far off there, black and sparkling, and still, still as a pond, deadly still, more still than ever uh, sea was before, more still than I could bear to look at. Have you watched a ship floating, head down, checked and sinking by a sheet of old iron, too rotten to stand, be, being shored up? Have you? Oh, yes, shored up. 
I thought of that. I thought of every moral, mortal thing, but you can sure up a bulkhead in five minutes, or in fifty for that matter. Where was I going to get men that would go down below and the timber, the timber? Would you, would you have had the courage to swing them all for the first blow if you had seen that bulkhead? Don't say you would. You had not seen it. Nobody would. Hang it. To do a thing like that, you must believe there is a chance, one in the thousand at least, some ghost of a chance, and you would not have believed. Nobody would have believed. You think me a cur for standing there, but what would you have done? What? You can't tell. Nobody can tell. One must have time to turn around. What would you have me do? Where was the kindness of making crazy with fright all those people I could not save single-handed? That nothing could save. Look here, as true as I sit on this chair before you. So, so here, Jim is just saying it was an impossible situation. Yes, it was impossible, and so that's why he he was really locked. Is like he didn't he didn't do anything. He you know he wasn't anything he could do because he just saw it happening and didn't want to to wake everybody up and then scare everybody and not be able to help them. And so he's saying, you know, what would you do? You know, I guess the idea is, and Marlo comes and talks about this later, you don't know until you're in a situation like that what you will do. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, one thing, everybody out there, I've been working on this um, article on mental toughness and how, you know, because of our COVID-19 experience, it's been kind of revealed that not many people have mental toughness. And, uh, you know, to me, when I was reading this again today, I just finished the article today, by the way. So, uh, but uh, when I realized, Jim, for all of his ability and all of his character and his stature, he he couldn't think in a in a panic situation. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not mental toughness. No, he he couldn't. He could. He wasn't a man of action. He he, no. he thought too much. He had too much imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he could do it in his dreams. Mm-hmm. He does say. He says, it does say um, you, you would, what does it say, something, something like that, you must believe there is a chance, one in a thousand at least, some ghost of a chance, and, you, and he, he didn't believe there was a chance at that yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, what, that's mm-hmm. really what he's saying there. So, so you, um, you know, anyway, uh, athletes, they have to believe they have a chance, even mm-hmm. under difficult situations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to learn all that with my with my uh, crazy marathon running. All right. Now, uh, it, we're going to slip now um, to uh, back to Marlowe. He says, He drew quick breaths at, at every few words and shot quick glances at my face as though in his anguish he were watchful of the effect. And so, so in other words, I think one of the things that also we have to learn about Jim here is that he really did worry about what people thought of him. I mean, he, he just met Marlowe and and it seems like he is really, um, you know, kind of like he's he's not as secure in himself as he might like you to think. He's, he was looking to him to see, well, how is this all affecting him? He said, he was not speaking to me. He was only speaking before me in a dispute with an invisible personality, an antagonistic and inseparable partner of his existence. Now, that's that's pure Conrad. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pure Conrad. Mm-hmm. For this not for this mm-hmm. novel, mm-hmm. he wants everyone to what dig in and find out what you're really like, and that that's what he's saying mm-hmm. there. There there is this uh, 
you know, it's it's like he he wasn't talking to Marlowe. He was talking with his other individual personality, an antagonistic and inseparable partner of his existence, another poss- another possessor of his soul. So so again, that's that's really I think that's great writing there, but it does give you a lot to think about because Conrad really did he really did study human nature and why people do what they do. But but uh, again, now here's a Here's a really good quote about the court inquiry, and this is this is Marlowe's judgment. In, in, in some ways, I think we have to look at it's it's almost like Jim is in this inquiry with Marlowe. It's just the two of them, and and Marlowe is the judge, you know. And and he even says this a little bit later that that uh, uh, he expe- he expected that Jim wanted absolution from him, you know. So it's it's like he's the priest. But but uh, uh, but he says these these were issues beyond the competency of a court inquiry. It was a subtle and momentous quarrel as to the true essence of life, and did not want a judge. He wanted uh, <clears throat> he wanted an ally, a helper, an accomplice. I felt the risk I ran of being circumvented, blinded, decoyed, bullied, perhaps into taking a definite part in the a dispute of decision. If one had to be fair to all the phantoms in possession, to the re, to the reputable that had its claims and to the disreputable that had its exigencies, I can't explain to you who haven't seen him and who hear his words only at the second hand, the mixed nature of my feelings. It seemed to me I was being made to comprehend the inconceivable and I know of nothing to compare with the discomfort of such a sensation. And so that's deep. <laughs> yes. That's really a deep paragraph there. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I need to go back and think of that one some more. <laughs> but, but it is, you know, the human mind is an amazing uh, creation, but it can get so distorted at times. And, uh, you know, sometimes we all do. I think everybody needs help to figure certain things out. He said, I was made to look at the convention that lurks in all truth and on the essential sincerity of falsehood. He appealed to all sides at once, to the side turned perpetually to the light of day and to that side of us which, like the other hemisphere of the moon, exists stealthily in perpetual darkness with only a fearful ashy light falling at times on the edge. He, was sway- he swayed me. I own to it. I own up. The occasion was, a, was obscure, insignificant, what you will. A lost youngster, one in a million, but there he was, one of us. An incident as completely devoid of importance as the flooding of an ant heap, and yet the mystery of this attitude got hold of me as though he had been an individual in the forefront of his kind, as if the obs- obscure truth involved were momentous enough to affect mankind's conception of itself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's really Conrad. Yes, that's Conrad. Yes. That's deep. That's deep, yes. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, I promised everybody, uh, this is where things change in the story, and you could get lost, but this is the frame narrator coming in now. This is not Marlowe speaking. This isn't Jim speaking. This is the other narrator that opened up the first couple chapters for us. It says, Marlowe paused to put new life into his expiring Cheroot. I guess that's probably a cigar. He seemed to forget all about the story and abruptly began again. 
No, so so that's the narrator interrupted, saying, "Okay, he had to he had to relight a cigar." So they're back on the veranda. This is way back in like chapter one or two when they were they were you know meeting with Marlowe, like they were on the, the Nelly. He says, Marlowe goes on to say, "My fault, of course. One has no business really to get interested." So so he's talking about how he's analyzing Jim, and now he's saying, "Hey, it's my fault. It's my fault. I got involved in this." It's a weakness of mine. He was of another kind. My weakness consists in not having a discriminating eye for the incidental, for the externals. No eye for the hod of the rag picker or of the fine linen of the next man. Next man, that's it. I have so many men, he pursu- uh, no, he, said, he said, I have so many men. And then, notice, the narrator comes back in. He pursued with momentary and sadness. Met them too. Now he comes back to... to um, uh, Marlowe, met them too with a certain, certain impact, let us say, like this fellow, for instance, in each case, all I could see was merely the human being, a confounded democratic quality of vision that may be better than total blindness, but has been of no advantage to me. I can assure you, men expect one to take into account their fine linen, but I never could get up any enthusiasm about these things. Oh, it's a failing. It's a failing, and then comes a soft evening. A lot of men, too uh, indolent for whist, whilst or whist, and a story. He paused again to wait for an encouraging. Per- he he paused again to wait for an encouraging remark, perhaps, but nobody spoke. Only the host, as if he reluctantly performing a duty, murmured, "You are so subtle, Marlowe." <laughs> so, so, that's the frame narrator coming in again, and so. Uh, so you can see that uh, yeah, I know some people would get confused with this, but there it is. So, so when you see this again, everybody out there listening, you know that this this narrator is always in the background. But I think it's funny. He says <laughs> he's wanting to, he's wanting to slap on the back, and he said, "You are so subtle, Marlo." <laughs> so, so who I said Marlo in a low voice? Oh no. But he was, and try as I may for the success of this yarn, I'm missing innumerable shades. They were so fine, so difficult to render in colorless words. Because he complicated matters by being so simple, too simple, the simplest poor devil, he was amazing. So, so after all of that we just read, Marlowe makes his final judgment. Jim was just amazing. <laughs> all right. So that is all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah and I will continue uh, following this discussion between Marlo and Jim at their dinner discussion, and we will finally get to the really important facts on the Patna. So now you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You will also be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. And you may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. I think more libraries are now being opened up again. So please write me any comments you may have to JBL at PCOG.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. And you can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. And remember, we've been working hard on this uh, Facebook page. It's already producing a lot of results. And uh, I am getting more and more messages from people. So thank you for doing that. But until next time, keep reading.
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.